1: Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hello, everyone. I am so thrilled to introduce you all to my guest today, the incredibly insightful, thoughtful, and multi-talented Chris Meyer. Chris is a former filmmaker and a funeral homeowner, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a licensed New York state attorney who clearly has had a fascinating life path. Chris graduated from both Brandeis University and Vermont Law School, where he earned a JD and a master's in environmental law and policy. However, he'd always dreamt of making films. So Chris began his career by writing, directing, and producing a low-budget film called Black is White. After realizing that making a living as a filmmaker came with tremendous challenges, to say the least, he took an opportunity in the funeral home industry and went on to own and operate multiple funeral homes. Pretty big twist, right? After years spent in the funeral home industry, Chris was inspired to write his first book, based on everything that he'd learned watching families go through some of their most vulnerable moments. It's called Life in 20 Lessons, What a Funeral Guy Discovered About Life from Death. It's an introspective, heartwarming nonfiction story about love and loss and living our best lives from the perspective of a man who was constantly surrounded by death. Chris went on to write a second, recently published novel called The Wood, a raw and powerful portrait of the inner workings of the filmmaking industry. And in addition to his two successful novels, Chris is also a tech executive, most recently having built FunAndMoving.com, the world's largest exercise platform for lively adults over 65. In my conversation with Chris, we discuss his early years growing up in New York, his less-than-traditional career path, his debut film, the experience he had building a life in Los Angeles, how he knew he was ready to make a change, what he learned from running funeral homes, how this pivot led him back to writing, and what it was like to release his first novel. And of course, so much more. Enjoy. So before we get into how you wound up writing a book about how to live from, from lessons on how people were dying. I, I, I want to go back. I, I always like to ask my guests about where things started for them. So where, Ooh. where did you grow up? What was, what was 10 year old Chris into?
0: Yeah. So that's, uh, I grew up in Westchester County, New York. Uh, uh, oddly enough, a town called Pleasantville, if you can believe that. <laughs> and it was it was sort of an idyllic childhood, about thirty five miles north of New York City, suburbia. A lot of men rode the train into New York City, and ten year old Chris just sports and loved. I was the youngest of three brothers, and just loved my family. Always have, and had a great mom and dad who you know, just did the the regular things like Little League and Boy Scouts and and that kind of thing. So very idyllic childhood. I'm uh, older than you guys. So I was a more of a child of the 70s. And it was riding bikes around the neighborhood. It was the ice cream truck, the good humor man, it was catching fireflies. You know, it was really I mean, it sounds sappy. But that was the childhood. Um, And it was pretty wonderful. And I was very, very lucky. Yeah. It was it was a, it was a great childhood.
1: That's so yeah. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> what what what's the dynamic in a household with three boys? You know, were were you and your brothers really close? Were you destroying stuff all the time? You know, what 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 was that? We
0: were, yeah, so in our family it's very uh prototypical, you know, I think are you an only child, right? Yeah. And so is my mom. So I have a lot of little knowledge there. But in our family, it was very much my firstborn brother was the type A striver. My middle guy was sort of that, you know, lost in between the two big personalities. And I was the, you know, the cute little one and the mama's boy, mama's baby. And so that was the dynamic very much. And we were close. Um, we did a lot of sp- my, my older brother and I played a lot of sports together. And my middle brother and I were sort of the the guys who would play under the oak tree in the shade tree with our cars. And we would, you know, talk out those stories of whether they were battles or race cars. Um, that, that was my childhood. And, and I was very, got to be a lot closer with my middle brother because we were closer in age, I think. And um, yeah, again, it, we had a great time. It was it was the seventies. It was chill. And, and your mom lets you go out and play. It's it, it's a different world that I live in for sure now <laughs> with my right. children. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: When When you talk about you and, and your middle brother, you know, creating the stories with whether it's like figurines or toy trucks or I don't know, G.I. Joe's, do you think that that's where you got a passion for storytelling like like when you think about it now can you see yourself kind of creating those things back then
0: you know i i like you said i never thought about it at the time mm. but in going back i think what was so great for me about the childhood is that there weren't video games right and my children and i'm sure you or you're on your phone all the time and we're just so iPhone centric, or and and that's maddening to me because the creativity of being able to just open the door and go out back and play with your brother and just or play with the neighborhood kids and it was so non technological and it was just a different time. And and my wife constantly says that she's like, You know, we can't we can't want for them what we had, it's a different world, and we can encourage them to go outside, but. We talk about it all the time. One time, when my kids were on there, when they were younger, they were on the phone the whole time. We were like, "You get outside, get outside and play." And my wife and I, it was like an experiment, right? We watched from the window, and we tried to see them in the dirt, and they didn't even know how to play, you know. And the dirt was like dirty to them, and that was so foreign to me. And uh, but it's that's the reality of where we live now. I think.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a bygone era.
0: But it's sad, but you know, it is the way it is.
1: I know. I miss it too, though that that idea of just being able to go out and play is
0: Do you have a neighborhood cool. similarly that you, you grew up in that you could hang with kids or no?
1: Yeah, I had a I had a period of my life, a couple of years where we lived in a really small town in Central California, you know, like five thousand mm-hmm. people, um, Central California coast. So I, I played outside a lot there, like on ranches and in the neighborhood. And we'd walk to school, you know, through these neighborhoods that were kind of nestled in these huge forests of pine trees. I mean, it was really, really amazing. And, and I think about how the imagination can really fire when there isn't always a screen in front of your face. And I I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, to be a kid born into a world where everyone has a smartphone. It must be crazy.
0: It must be insane. And also you wonder about the creativity, right? Yeah. For me is that time of just, and I see it more with my younger son. He can take those figurines and we, my wife and I talk about listening to his story, how Mm. he plays and how he enunciates you know, the different parts that he's playing. It's it's, it's actually hilarious to listen to mm-hmm. and very rich. But those are the synapses that you wonder, are they connecting in the brain if they're just, you know, being fed their Instagram feed or whatever else, right? Um, so it, it's incumbent upon the parent to, to do that, to, to encourage that. But at the same time, you're like, especially, right, in, in, when we're in quarantine, there are times my wife and I are like, thank God we, he has Xbox to go and he can, he can, you know, we can spread out a little bit and he can have his, you know, fun time with his friends. And it's, it's a different style of play, but, you know, um, you know, where maybe eight months ago we were like, oh, just stop with the Xbox. Now you're like, right. you know, thank you, Lord.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I wonder also what what one of the through lines might be because you talk about the impact of, of being outside, being in the outdoors, that, what that had on your childhood. And I know that you went to law school in Vermont, uh, to study environmental law, right? Right. Yeah. So was that, was that born out of a passion for the outdoors out of that kind of boy scout mentality or, or did you decide you wanted to study environmental law for a different reason?
0: Well, I, I was intrigued by Vermont because they had this program where you had a, you got a master's, uh, if you went straight through the summer. So I went to law school, September to May, and then I stayed there and I went to get into a master's program straight oh. through the summer. So I was like, for two years, I got a, a JD and a master's degree. So that's why it was born out of that, um, Vermont was a, obviously a, a wonderful place to go to law school. The ironic thing of it all in in uh, environmental law, the, the good paying jobs on the polluting side, right? You know, oh. That's the thing like ExxonMobil is trying to get, <laughs> right? I mean, but that's the truth, right? So I was working at the Superfund branch, Environmental Protection Agency in New York City. And, you know, a starting attorney in New York city at the environmental protection agency is making $35,000. And how do you live in New York? on 30, You know, but that, that was the reality. And it was an unfortunate reality. Um, and I think that's what kind of drove me. I didn't know that I could be working for polluting, you know, or trying to get out of the clean water act or all these great laws. And um, I think that was the genesis for me getting into some uh, the creativity of, of uh, making a movie. And I made a low-budget film in New York City um, called Black is White, which is on YouTube. And it was, I flip-flopped the races. I My African-American actors played white people and the white actors played the black people. And uh, it was a small thing. I went to a bunch of film festivals. I didn't get into Sundance. And so I just loaded up my car and I drove to LA to try to be a writer, so that was a uh, crazy did you, time
1: did you write that film
0: I wrote directed and produced yeah wow. made it for a hundred thousand dollars in New York City in and around New York City and yeah it was a great experience and um, you know it was it came out in uh, 93 or 94 uh, and it, I was inspired by the LA race riots and I just I just didn't understand I just Till to this day, the whole idea of of race relations bugs me because I just don't get it. Uh, I mean, I get it, but I don't understand it. I tell one of the stories in the book is when I went into, uh, when I started in the funeral industry and and I walked into the prep room and there were these two bodies here, right? There was an African-American body and a a white body. And they were, I, I was shocking. They were splayed open you know, doing an embalming and I just stopped. The shock was one thing, but then I just stopped and I looked for a second and I'm like, the insides are exactly the same, (laughs) you know? It's like, we're human beings and we make such a big deal of these outer, you know, meat suits that I call them, right? But that was one of the most profound things. And then again, I I think you're hitting on it. it. There are these maybe 10 year cycles of reminding you that these are the stories you're telling and you're telling there's a reason you're telling these stories over your lifetime. Mm. So, um, yeah.
1: And how interesting that this first film that you made was really, to use your words in, in order to flip flop the kind of hierarchies that come from this culture of supremacy that actually isn't rooted in anything because as you're, acknowledging we're all human beings to to muse on how ridiculous it is that we treat people differently depending on what they look like uh, you know just out of college when when you're starting to put your mark on the world and then all those years later to quite literally see that we're all the same on the inside uh, and to have that knowledge that that kind of clarity of equality Emphasized and and confirmed in such a biological way. It must have really like that. Must have been a really intense experience to see people's insides on on the table.
0: It was everything because it was twofold, right? It was twofold intense, twofold intensity, right? You walk in, and I was again. I'm a screenwriter. I'm a lawyer who's a screenwriter for ten years, and I'm walking into a prep room for the first time and seeing these bodies like that. That's shocking enough, but then. I don't know my brain went somewhere and it was just like oh my god there's a reason for me being here you know and it's I don't know you don't want to get too hoo-ha and you know out there but it was just profound for me and it's a it's we, we waste too much time on it and I don't want to minimize it in any way shape or form but let's move on, you know, let's, let's well, yeah. do other I, good stuff. <laughs>
1: I bet I bet you wish people who looked like us would stop doing all the terrible <laughs> shit we're doing in the world to people who don't look like us. It's like, come on, what are we doing? What's happening?
0: You know, and it is, it, it's funny. I, I Whatever political thought you say, you just got to wake up, man. It's just, it's just such a waste of time. Mm. You don't need this.
1: Mm. Well, the lesson's, you know, to your point, what we waste time on—the the things we can kind of miss in the in the time that we're living—that that you learned in this second phase of your career—I I really want to get into. I also want to know what happens in the middle. Because to your point, you you made this movie. You moved to LA. You are a lawyer who's working as a screenwriter. Uh, what are you writing? Working, working
0: is a subjective thing, uh, well, there. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. I know. I mean, trying to make it as a screenwriter, <laughs> but you spent ten years here in LA. So, right. What was it that allowed you, or or gave you the faith? to make the switch and to come here and to try to do that. And then what do you yeah. spend the next 10 years doing?
0: Yeah. So the only thing I can attribute it to, I have to say, it's gotta be my parents, right? When they instilled in me, my father, when I was a freshman in high school, I saw him leave a company, a steady job and create uh, this massive company that turned out to be a massive company out of our, our living room. You know, and I would be at night, there would be people coming over moonlighting and helping my father and my father would obviously pay them to build this business. And I saw that, cur- that kernel of an idea in his head sprout to something larger. And, I, and that's the only thing I can really think of that. He, I saw my father had so much joy for what he did. He was a civil engineer and I. I don't know if you know anything about civil engineers, but it's a really boring thing. It's about, you know, where a building goes and how many parking spaces and drainage. But I I saw in him the joy that he had every day in doing it. He wasn't a sports guy, but he loved it. And you could see the smile and the excitement on his face. And so I think that he gave me that kind of courage to say, just load up your car and go and just live the life that you want to live. And L.A., as you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, it, it's brutal. I mean, it's brutal without any connections. And um, I was just loving it. And I, I, I was very fortunate. I worked for a guy named Herb Ritz, who was probably one of the foremost fashion photographers before his untimely death. And he had a production company. And I had a friend who was a production manager and hired me as just a grunt. And so I got to, you know, I had a great job. I would like pick up Helena Christensen at the Chateau Marmont in my little car and drive her to the set, <laughs> you know, Cindy Crawford. And you know, it was Danielle Kostova. And I was a grunt on these shoots, these high fashion shoots. And it was great. I mean, I would make some money then I could go write for a couple months and I would live commercial to commercial. And uh, that was how I survived. Luckily, I got hired by Paramount Classics on the Paramount lot to do their Academy Award campaigns every fall season. So it was like October, November to um, you know February. They would try to push their films and send out screeners to all the AMPAS people, the Academy people, and that was another job. So there were just those those kind of fringe jobs that no one really knows about. Um, but you can survive doing it. And that's how I survived.
1: And you met your wife while you were in LA, correct?
0: I did at an eighties night in uh, Santa Monica.
1: Oh, you know? okay. She was
0: dancing on the stage. Yes. And so that's, uh, we were there <laughs> from, from that night forward. We've been together. Yeah. It was, and it was funny because it was a blind date and she was from like, she was working at some small university in like Corona, you know, out, if you know LA, it's, it's, it's the Inland Empire. And, and it just was very happenstance. Um, Hmm. But we just struck up a nice friendship and, you know, from there took it. So um, it, it's a pretty, it's a maddening place. I found LA to be quite maddening. I found it to be quite brutal in terms of trying to become a writer. And it's, it's a, it's a hard process and, to get a manager and then to get an agent and then to slowly get yourself in the door and write scripts. Um, It it actually is the Genesis for another book that I'm, I'm writing about Hollywood and and a a romantic comedy set in Hollywood, because I feel like the lay person who is in Iowa wants to really know how Hollywood works. And there's been a couple good films like the player or swimming with sharks or, Certainly, entourage on the TV front, but uh, that to me is very intriguing right now.
1: That's how cool. Hollywood
0: works. Yeah.
1: So you're out here. You're building a life. You're you're working in the industry, and and you know we all have to start doing grunt jobs that are brutal, and <laughs> that that I get. You know, you 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 meet your now wife. You're making a life together, and then you decided to leave LA. When, when was this and and why?
0: Yeah. So that was pretty, uh, we had my son, my first son. And, um, I think that was the, the realization of many things. I had probably put off adulthood longer than most men could. (laughs) Um, I was in my late thirties and, you know, we, I remember running over to Cedar sinai and, and doing all the you know mommy and daddy and me classes over there and when he came out I mean it was just it was such a shock to my system to see the child and say wow you know that was adulthood for me because then it was like hey yo you got to start teaching me about all this and and how how am I going to grow up and you know so that was the profound impact for me and it was just, what do we do? Because I wasn't making it. My wife was working in Westwood and she was carrying us, but she said, I want to be a mom. And we had to make a decision. So that was a decision that, that changed my life in so many ways.
1: So what, um, walk us through the decision. What, what did you decide to do? Where did you go?
0: Well, you know, it's funny because you're a screenwriter and you're like, wow, I've been out of law. I'm, I'm a licensed attorney in New York, but I was like, I don't want to be an attorney because I knew you. It was going to be 24-7. I wanted to be a dad, too. I wanted to be involved in this child's life. And so it was, what are the options? Go back to New York near my family or go up north where her, her family's from. And she's like, I'd like to be near my family if that's okay. And I was like, yeah. And she had a, this <laughs> – this is the crazy story. She had a friend who was a mortician who would be like at every family gathering. And mm. he would he would just hound me and say, Chris, if you ever want to be in business – This business is so solid. There's always people dying and it's a great business. And I was like, you know, no, no, you know, just like you would look at, you know, someone like say that to you. And, and then honestly, when we had this, my son, I was like, I think that's the best option that I have right now. So I slept on his couch and I scouted up in the Northern California area, just doing my due diligence. And lo and behold, we came upon a funeral home that had been in the community since 1965. I was having some financial troubles and bought it. And from that day forward, it was like, wow, that, that was the life changer.
1: Wow. And, and so how how did you do that? I mean, did that require getting a small business loan. I mean, cause that that's a big entrepreneurial shift to buy a business. And I'm sure there's people listening going, okay, but how did you do that?
0: Correct. So I was super fortunate. My parents had money and they helped us. I did go to the SBA exactly like you talked about. There's a small business. There's something called score, which are essentially retired businessmen who donate their time to advise you how to Run a business, start a business, what you need to think about. So I went to the local score chapter uh, many times. They gave you business plans. The, see, the ironic thing about starting a business is that I purchased a business that had been in the community since 1965 and 2004. So I went to the bank with all these documentation saying, This is a thriving business. Here are the financials. And they looked at me and they said, yeah, but you have no experience. And I was like, I have a mortician. He's licensed. I have everything. He's you know a friend of the family. And they're like, yeah, no. You know, so that was the irony of it all. You have a thriving business that is, well, it wasn't thriving at the time, but we had all the financials and we knew we could turn it around, but the bank doesn't want to take a chance on you. So we, um, my parents made this incredible gesture of kindness for me and my fam- my new family. And we said, well, listen, we only need it until the bank has agreed that, you know, if we have two years of good sound financials, then we'll give you a loan. And that's what we did. And it was it, it was such a great experience because you had this thing hanging over your head, this financial burden to your parents who took this massive risk on you. And I had a newborn and I was like, there is no way I'm gonna do anything but make this thing succeed. So I think that was like this this super fire under under me to just nonstop work and run home and work and run home. And so I couldn't let it fail. Did you no have, options?
1: Yeah. Well, and not having an option, I think, is is a great motivator. You know, you know there's no way there's no way you're gonna let this thing go down in flames. I'm curious about the shift in line of work because to go from writing to running a funeral home that's that's a big shift. Did you yeah. have hesitations <laughs> about going into the business? I mean, I mean I know that you knew this guy, your wife's friend who who was a mortician, so I imagine he had a lot of information to share and and could tell you a lot and answer a lot of questions, but I'm still sitting here going, what's going through your head when you're thinking about doing this?
0: I think that, I think the, it can't fail was the biggest thing that was going through my head. And I think that, you know, in making that movie in New York, I was, had to be mindful of the budget because I had a finite amount of money. So I was watching every single penny where it was spent, how it was spent. And again, going back one step further to watching my father and watching what he went through and listening to the conversations at the dinner table that he was having with his contemporaries. He was really, he and my mother were just, they would share everything. It was an open book. So I would literally see spreadsheets on the tables and I would ask about them and they would give me all the firsthand knowledge. So that's, that I would have to say was probably the, The greatest gift, and the the key is what most leaders say is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. So I I I was very good at that. I knew that I, you know, was not the smartest guy in the room and on every subject. So finding quality people, I thought that was that that was probably the best advice. Some of my dad gave me. My dad was super intelligent. He was the guy. But that wasn't me. And I think you have to understand that introspection to be able to look in the mirror and say, yeah, that's not my strength or this is my strength. And, um, you know, surround yourself. For me, that's what, that's what it was. Surround yourself with great
1: people. Mm. So you've got these lessons kind of under your belt and you realize now you have a place to apply them. But like you mentioned earlier, now you're in rooms with dead bodies. what was this like at first? What, how does a funeral home work? What is it like to rent one?
0: It's, I'll tell you, it's tough, especially coming, never having any experience in that business and, you know, just watching how it's done, getting a call right to the funeral home and the person's either in their home, they're in the hospital, they're at the coroner's office and the most tragic ones were generally when they were at home, right? And you would find people in various positions in various parts of the house. I mean, everyone doesn't die with a beautiful blanket, an afghan, up across their chest. You know, that's, that's kind of how we think of death. I mean, it is, an, it is a rough and ugly business. and. Um, You have to go and be respectful. That's the other thing, because you're walking into a hornet's nest, generally speaking. These people, especially in the home, right? They've been with their loved one, you know, probably for a protracted period, and they're hurting. This is someone they care about dearly. They haven't been eating right. They haven't been drinking right. Their family comes in. Right. There's always that hair trigger aspect of everything. You know, the long lost brothers coming in to say his final goodbyes, and you know that he, he couldn't stand mom and dad. And or you know, it's it there's that whole dynamic. And as the guy who's coming in to take mom away, you have to kind of quickly suss up all those personalities and not step on anyone's toes and then get her, you know, on the gurney in a respectful manner and then, you know, take her to the funeral home. So that the sort of the, like you said, the the nuts and bolts, the grittiness of it all was very, very shocking. And I think it, for me, it, it was really tough because I'm the kind of guy that I get emotionally involved. You know, I, I start looking at the faces and I start seeing the expressions on the faces. And I think, that's what was very, very draining because uh, you, you get caught up in their story, you know? You're thinking, what if that was my mom, mm. right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it takes an emotional toll.
0: And if it doesn't, I don't see that. I, I didn't see the flip side. I think that was it for me, Sophia. It's, it's like I didn't understand how you could just make it a business, how you could just go in there and do your job and just be a robot like for me that didn't work either like I wanted I wanted to be able to look the man or woman in the eye and say hey you know hold their hand and say I got you I got you here I'm gonna treat your loved one like it's my mom or dad right and I think you hit the nail on the head you know I'm seven years in now and I'm like Oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I, I was so drained every night and, and the constant, like, you know, empathy that you're having for these families, you're starting to think like, Hey man, I gotta be careful so I don't get taken down with this all. So yeah, that was, the. I think that's where the writing came out of, you know, I, I figured after that seven to 10 year period, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta start putting some of this on paper because I can help people I know I can help people who are living by like saying hey you know smack them upside out of the head with the book and say read this you know you gotta you gotta stop think you know feeling sorry for yourself or feeling having bad feelings for your brother or sister you gotta wake up mm. it's all gonna be over in a short amount of time yeah, yeah. so yeah that was that was it for me
1: mm. when when you first got there and you know you mention it's emotional it's it's hard to look at people who are losing their loved ones to to know how to move in those rooms with them to hold space for their experience to do that respectfully and then to to your earlier point about what you saw when you first walked into a prep room there's also like medically technical procedures involved here. It's, it's a, it's a physically brutal uh, business. Was it, was it strange to witness those things, to actually see how bodies have to be processed to, to see, you know, the, the sort of space between the emotional experience of grief and then the, and then the stuff that has to be done with what remains.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's best that the layperson doesn't know anything about that because mm. the, the behind the curtain stuff is not pretty, you know. And as you can imagine, the preservation of a body or the dressing of a body and the care for a body after that sort of post mortem period is brutal. And there are professionals, and I was not licensed and I did not do that portion of the prep and the embalming. That is a a very specific thing. But witnessing it, you know, I, I I talk about there's two ways it could go, right? In the funeral industry, it's a very notorious heavy drinking industry to sort of dull sort of these emotions, or you could do the opposite and get home and just be overjoyed. And I think for me, I had this son to go home to. And I was so overjoyed to share, you know, I knew what I left and I knew that this was a new beginning. And then we proceeded to have two more sons. So I think for me, I call it sort of the grand reminder. It was, I knew what my work was and it told me to go home and play with your kids and laugh and try to coach everything that they did and be at school. And when they had something in the day, take the time to do it. It was that's what was so profound for me. It was that reminder that, hey, Chris, go. This work will be here. We have qualified people who can run this place while you're not here for an hour, going to your child's school. And it was great. I mean, I literally, that, that made me happy. So I, I took it as a positive. You know, I just tried to make it yeah. work for me.
1: Is there a point in hindsight that you look at where you realize you started looking at your life differently, that, that you started in for the sure. face of grief, focusing on gratitude at home? Can, can you see when that happened?
0: Well, there are many instances, and I think they keep coming over and over again. But I think one of the most profound for me was a woman who lost her daughter in an auto accident. It was the craziest situation. She was a teenage girl and she had a surviving uh, sister who they were like best friends. And she came into an arrangement one day with this other daughter and they said, I have an unusual request. And I said, you know, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, in your, you're sitting, I know exactly. You're sitting there and you're like, oh, great. What's coming next? So she and her daughter proceed to tell you, we'd like to take her. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, we would like to take her with us. We know you've picked her up and she's in the back with you. We want to take her in the car for one last ride around town to the old haunts with some of her friends. And I'm like, this lady's out of her mind, right? And so I went to the the woman who runs the place and I said, is this even legal? And she said, absolutely. There's no preclusion for us to do that. And you can allow that. And I'm like, how is this even possible? So she proceeded with her daughter and a couple of friends to put her in the, the bot. This is like weekend at Bernie's, right? I mean, I'm thinking, I call it weekend at Bermondette. And they drove to like where they used to drink beers down by the river. They even went to Mickey D's through the drive-thru. So she comes back, you know, an hour later, all the friends there, and she's coming down off a high. They're all giggling, and they're there. it's it was almost like this frenzied kind of giggle. And I was just like, I can't believe I even witnessed this or allowed this. And sh- the friends leave, and I'm looking at the mom, and I'm like, Are you okay? And and she's like, No. And I said, What's up? And she's like, I need to see her. And can I can I stay and see her? And so you know, we do that all the time. We put her the the decedent in a side room and they sit and you close the door and they set have some nice quiet time. And I had work to do in the back. So I went in the back and I was doing sort of the business paying of the bills in the back. And it was about two hours later. And I'm like, I've got to go home. Now it's six thirty-seven o'clock and I'm ready to go. So I come back, everyone's gone in the funeral home and it's just her. And I open the door and there's, you know, her 15 year old daughter laying there with her and she's, in a chair, holding her daughter's hand, and she looked, turned, and looked at me. She goes, "She's like, I have to go, right?" And I said, "Well, it's, it's closing time." And she's, and I looked her in the eye, and in that instant, I knew it—it it wasn't over for her, right? And I said, "You know, would you like to stay?" And she said, "Are you kidding me?" And I said, "No." And I took the key off my keychain. And I gave it to her, and I said, "I'll lock up. You can stay all night if you want, and just leave the key in the outside mailbox." So obviously, I went home that night. My little boy's there, and I'm, you know, tucking him in. Obviously, holding him a little extra tight tonight, and rubbing his head. And I went back the next morning, and she was there. And I went in, and I said, "Are you okay?" And she was still there, and you know, she got up. And she gave me a hug, and she said, you're a good man, and, and left. But I always think about that time, the, the critical time for me is when that loved one says goodbye to for the last time, right? This is the last time she will see her daughter. She is dead, but she will not see her again. What does that moment feel like? How can you, as a businessman, quote unquote, rush someone out in that moment? right? So um, I, 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 I literally saw the woman a year later in the grocery store and I went up to her and I introduced myself and she just looked me in the eye and and she gave me a hug and she just said that again. She said, good man, you're a good man. And she walked away and I felt so bad. I came home and told my wife, I was like, I should have just walked by her in that grocery store because I think she was healing and I brought her back, you know, just by saying, hey, I'm Chris from the funeral home. And, and I knew she had a glimpse of, you know, the kindness for me, but I could also see that, you know, it almost felt to me like she had healed and I brought her back and, and gave her that memory again. But it, it, that was probably one of the, the great, great moments for me of being. And again, it, it turns out that I felt guilty about, you know, talking to her that year. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I get that, but I, you know, I've, I've never experienced what that woman did, but what I will say is when I've experienced grief, the grief doesn't go away. I I can't imagine that that woman's going (laughs) to heal from that per se, but I can imagine that the fact that you never forgot her was meaningful to her because really so. you know that that has to mean that you never forgot her daughter and and i i can't imagine what would be more comforting you know for someone who is walking around you know forever missing a piece of her heart i i i think that you know, sometimes having those things recognized sure is painful, but not because the recognition is painful. It's, it's painful because the loss was painful. And
0: yeah,
1: I don't know. I, and I you, think you
0: said it, you said it. It's, it's so true because I, you were talking about grief and you're saying the grief doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we think that as a society is that when the death happens there, you know, you could read a book and, and you know, oh my grief is going to be gone in six months or yeah, eight months it doesn't or not work like that you know it doesn't work that way and and that's I had a I was very fortunate. my mother's I told you was an only child and, and she had a father who lost his wife very early and he and I grew up together and were best friends and that's exactly it. that grief, that love that I had for him never goes away and it's odd how it comes to you and mm-hmm. and again, I, I heard your your thing about nature for me, it comes to me in nature. I go on these early morning walks and mm. there are trees around, and I know he grew up in a sawmill in germany and and trees mm. were everything to him and I feel that you know I feel him and the- and it's like it's almost like a i don't know it comes in in your chest and you're just like, Wow, mm. that reminder, but I don't think the grief the grief for me. I miss him, but it's like it's an honoring. I I mm. see it as a hey man, I'm I'm with you still, you know? Yeah. And I like that. I really like that. That's the way I want to think of the grief. The early mm. grief is tough though, any way you slice it. It's, yeah. Of course. It takes time. Yeah. Well,
1: I wonder if part of the reason it's so tough, I mean, obviously loss is tremendously painful. And, and yet I'm struck by the reality that death is something that touches everyone. You know, you, when, when you were talking about your book, it, it, there's a practical thing we have to say, which is we're all going to die. But we have such a hard time as a society talking about it, knowing what to say to people who are going through it. Do you feel after all these years of holding the space that you do Do you, do you have hunches? You know, why, why do you think it's so hard for us to open up about it, to talk about it?
0: I think as a society, we have a hard time with emotions. And I think, especially from a male perspective, you know, you're supposed to be this strong, you know, not show anything. I just, I don't buy into that. It's, it's very similar to what you and I just spoke about when we were talking about race. I, I think it's tough to talk about death because it's so darn permanent and I think that you know uh, that's why for me writing about something and spinning it to the positive and having the appreciation is so necessary and it's it's such a like you said we're all going it's we're all gonna go when we go you know let's let's have left our mark in some way for me, again, this is not for everyone, but for me, it's family. For me, that's what it's always been. That's what I've, I've wow. just loved it. I, I had a great family. I still have a great family. And I think, you know, as a society, we want to have more and more and more and more friends and more material possessions and more this. And I, I don't think you need it. And I think in many ways, as, as horrible as a quarantine is, it's a great reflective moment to hit that reset or get out in nature. And like you said, how nature is actually doing better because we're all inside. It is that collective reset. Um, I, I wish that people could just break down some more walls and not be so, you know, have to be strong in society. It, it's, a, it's a great thing to talk about. And certainly your parents need to talk about it as they get older. Um, it, there's nothing to be afraid of. We're all going. You yeah. just hope it's not night, not soon.
1: Do you think there are things people misunderstand about death?
0: Yeah, I think it's just what we spoke about. It's just trying not to talk about it. I think, I think it's the opposite. I think you want to talk about it. I want to draw those stories out of you. I want to understand how you're feeling in your brain that grandpa is gone. What were those happy moments that you had with him? me about those because in telling them it's cathartic and it gets it out it's the people that are just tight and hold everything inside that it, it's going to go one day you're going to combust and just explode i think it's so much healthier to just have those conversations and they're tough i mean they're tough as much as we articulate this in a book or hearing it's something on youtube or something like that i know my parents are 80 years old and it's hard to talk about it you know. I, I don't know what it's being like at 80. Do you think about how much more do I have? What's tomorrow? Is it, am I thinking five years from now? Am I thinking, I'm just thinking, put my feet on the ground tomorrow. It's a tough, tough subject. And I think it takes people like you and me to just say, Hey man, let's talk about it. What what are you feeling?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. How's that going? How's that going for you? I'm sorry for your loss, but tell me about that. Tell Mm -hmm. me about it. It's that amateur psychology of it all, right? We mm. all need that,
1: yeah. To to ask and and to offer people a, a container, you know, to say to someone, "I'll hold this space for you." I think can be really it. it can be really transformative. Can you walk us through some of? the lessons that you write about in your book, some of the the big aha moments you've had sitting with people in grief, because you referenced it earlier, your experiences in the funeral home have really helped you see what gets clear for people about what they actually need and what they don't and what's important. And I'm, I'm curious what some of those lessons have been.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I talk about a lot of different lessons, uh, and about you know, fam, become a millionaire. I talk about, I talk about the respecting of others, having a, having faith or spirituality. Again, I don't just like the race. I don't want to get caught up in the religion. I think having some kind of, some kind of foundation that works for you is great. Or if if there's not some uh, actual religion to have a spirituality that you're part of a, a greater good. I think one of the great lessons is to, to fail. And I, I wish, you know, we all want to fail as much as we can, because it means we're trying. If you're not failing, you're not trying. And I think one of another great lessons was a woman who, who walked into the funeral home and I could see her checking things out with her husband and they came down as she came into focus she, I could see the side of her face was like slumped, it looked like from a seizure or something. And you know, I, I said, "Can I help you?" And she said, "We're here to make funeral arrangements." And like, you know, I said, I, "I have it all down in my head. You know, for who? Who's it? Mom, Dad, Grandma?" And she said, "For me." And I said, "Excuse me." And, and she said, "I'm here with my. This is my husband, and I know he can't handle this, so I'm here to tell you what I want." And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, I, I, that, that had never happened to me before. And I sat down with her, and she had two children, and we went through the whole thing. And that, for me, again, was just so – she didn't want – all she wanted to be was at home with her family, right? She knew she was dying. She's, the doctors told her, you have you know less than six months but what do you do when someone tells you that? Mm. And so we went through everything and she and I had this great talking about children and talking about, you know, what she wanted and how she wanted it. And then one day, you know, the phone rang and uh, uh, someone in the office said, Chris, you know, they requested you. And I was like, you know, who?" I didn't recognize the name. And I went like I did, got in the car, and, or the van and pick her up. And I, I drove there and I saw him at the front door and he was her husband was crying and he saw me and he gave me a big hug and and I walked in to that living room and I saw her. in the living room she was on a hospital bed with Afghan pictures of the kids and you know data bottles and 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 stuffed animals and you could just see how much love was in the home and it was not a fancy home was very modest, and, and it just struck me because she had told me six months ago exactly how she wanted to go, and she did it, right? And, and it was just, again, one of those heartfelt moments where you're like, I, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe that I'm here. She was this living person describing exactly what she wanted six months ago, and now I'm here to, to take her. And th- that, was, that was just, uh, it was just, an, again, in retrospect, it was probably one of the greater moments of reminders for me in learning about death. But it was so really sad, you know, you, to see someone living and then know them when they're living. Usually it's just go get the call, go pick up the body, and you have no connection. And this, this was very different. And I think another uh, piggybacking on that was, you know, I talked a lot about, you know, when you go home, you have these, these moments. And one of my middle son, you know, I have this uh, routine of tucking the boys in and, you know, you have to go through each one of them. <laughs> my wife laughs at me. She's like, I don't know how you do this, you know, 15, 20 minutes with every child every night. And I was like, you know, what's better than that? So in those moments, you know, they, they're relaxing for their day. And, and I sat down with my middle guy and he said to me, just out of the, the freaking blue one day, he's like, Daddy, what happens when you die? And then, you know, you're like, oh, man where am I going with this? I mean, I'm in the business. I deal with this every day. And my son, you know, obviously has articulated like, what, What? tell me what happens. And so I just went into this, you know, what I believe, you know, my, my story. And I talked about my grandfather who had passed and how there is, I, I believe in the heaven and that we go there and, and it's this great grand place. And, and then he turns to me and goes, you know, But Dad, how am I going to find you? It sounds like a really big place. You know, I'm in tears at that point. I I went in and I talked to my my wife, and she's like, "Why are you crying?" I'm like, "I just had the the most epic conversation with a seven year old that you could ever imagine." I mean, and so you have I have those moments, and especially in retrospect, they become you become like, "Wow, that's that's pretty." that was pretty special. And, and the gift I say of, of being in this funeral business, it, it came back a millionfold right there. And that, just in that one instance, you know? So there are those, I think it's just, you know, that the message of time, you know, we, that's the one thing you can't get more of. Right. And I think you hear that a lot. But when you're in the funeral business, and when the families are saying, "Hey, man, Chris, go home, take the time, go home and be with your children," and so I've lived like that, and I feel pretty good. You know, it's kind of that has been a, a great sort of renaissance in me to just uh, step off the habit trail of life and to step uh, off the habit trail.
1: I like that a lot. I like
0: that a <laughs> yeah. lot. Yeah, and and.
1: and- And to your point, the idea of go home, you know, have dinner with your family, coach your kids, soccer team, whatever it is, but be there more because that's the stuff every family's talking about when they're walking through your doors.
0: And eat the cake, eat the (laughs) cake, right? Eat that last, I mean, food, you hit it. Talk about that. You know, how you grew up, what, what, those are such fond memories, food, you know, we're all like, you know, especially in LA, I was like, I want to get lean. I got to get ripped. I got to get organic. You know, <laughs> I'm like enough, you know, eat the cake.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: think about <laughs> those moments with at Thanksgiving dinner. When I look down the left and I look right on these little cheesy Costco tables. Right. But with a little, and that's family and we're having a meal and whether it's, whether you have twenty people or you have three, or if you don't have true family, those friends that we all have that we consider family, break bread together. You know, Anthony Bourdain was the the king of that, right? I mean, he would travel the world over, and he would he would just break bread because he knew he could break you down. It didn't matter your politics at that moment, right? We could just talk about the common interest of loving this great meal or this great drink. That to me is the good stuff.
1: I love that. I feel that too. Yeah. Do you think, and I I wonder about this, you know, these are big emotional observations and lessons you get to learn in your line of work. And I can't help but think about where our lines of work used to overlap. (laughs) Do you (laughs) think that death is accurately portrayed in what we see in movies and television, is, is there anything about what you see that you would want to change?
0: Well, I think it—I think it is. Uh, especially there was that. What was the—the the two brothers in the funeral home. I think there was—I forget the name of the show. There was a series back hmm. in the day,
1: Six Feet Under. Uh,
0: six Feet Under. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that was—that was, that was a, a very clear depiction. But I think what's hard to encapsulate is like you talked about, is the, the time, that grief. You know, in a movie, we're, it's an hour and a half, right? And we're sitting there and, and you're hearing the stories and you, there is an emotional component and we can tap into that. But grief is such this vast thing. And it, it's funny, right? Because it comes and goes for each of us in a different way. And I will always say to people, the amount of grief that you will feel is commensurate with the amount of love that you felt for that person. Mm. And that's a good thing, right? So for me and my grandfather, this guy, you know, I was like, the sun rose and set on this man. So when he died, I was wrecked. And then I would look over at my other brothers who who just weren't around. They were at college or law school. And I was there going to dinner with my grandfather. He would come to all my sports games, he would, you know, we just had a different relationship, and I was like, "Why are you not hurting like I'm hurting?" And, and my middle brother, was, I remember it like it was yesterday. he said, "I just didn't have that relationship that you had. You and Upa were, were super close. Upa's grandfather in German, and he it was, and he wasn't jealous, he wasn't angry. he was. Right. it was just, hey." Chris, you and him were best friends and that wasn't my relationship. So that I think is really important. If you're hurting, it's good because you had a lot of love for that person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Well, Chris, as you know, the podcast is called Work in Progress. And my favorite thing to ask everyone who joins me for these conversations is when you hear the phrase – what comes to mind, whether it's personal or professional or, or anything really as a work in progress in your life right now?
0: I kind of feel like, aren't we all kind of works? I mean, that's, what, that's what's so great about your, the title, because I think you know it. I, and again, I think uh, you're very introspective and I think your connection with nature, it's really important. I think, you know, As tell me if you felt this way, because as a young man... I was always like, you know, you're trying to like kind of keep up with the Joneses. And again, I talk about that habit trail and you're trying to, you think the magazines or the videos have showed you a way to live or we want the Maybach and the Crystal and all this. And I think that we're all work in progresses, whether you're a 37-year-old woman, a 54-year-old man, an 18-year-old kid we're all works in progress and if we could tell our younger selves that hey man you got time go make the mistakes now that's the good stuff for me that's the good stuff but i'm a work in progress here i don't have it all figured out and if my 18 year old self knew that i think things would be a lot more relaxed right day is that that brick right whether it's that memory brick and we're building a long-term house here, and it's one brick at a time. You can't just throw everything up and have a house. It takes days, it takes years, it takes lifetimes. So that's 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 a work in progress. I love the title.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. I, I really am excited for people to hear this conversation and and to read your book. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate the time and giving me the opportunity. Yeah. Have a great day.
1: My gosh, you too. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Crillian Anatomy.